When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to visit with Joe Dahl. He lives in Fallon, Nevada, and I'm excited for you to hear his story. I'm Joe Dahl, lived in Fallon, Nevada, raised in Elko County. Uh, spent a lot of time in California, hauling horses around and trading horses <clears throat> and training horses. Um, spent a lot of time in Nevada. Uh, you gave kind of an outline of what you might expect or what I might expect to be able to tell on mm-hmm. this. And ranching was uh, mentioned in there. And, and I realized I I never had a real great desire to be a rancher. Uh, I wanted to be a cowboy or a horseman. or um, And I have been a rancher, but I guess it's not my favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, my brother, Demar, has said often, you got to remember why we have cows is so that we can make good horses. And I've kind of uh, agree with that part. Uh, I've day worked for a lot of ranches over the years to get uh, out and around and see more cowboys and more cattle and more country and uh, have really enjoyed all of it. So your interest was more in the horse aspect of it and not so much the cattle. Yeah, that's right. And cattle, I really appreciate cattle. I, I don't uh, pamper cattle or run cattle in a in a close environment, but out in open country where it's kind of the sport of handling them uh, as Years have gone by. My wife has uh, been inclined to keep a record of every cow, have an ear tag with a number in it, and I just uh, don't never have wanted to do that part. That uh, I don't want to be a cow farmer. I never have. <clears throat> I I got started as a cowboy when I was about ten years old. Uh, my father took us all to Virginia uh, from a family ranch in Star Valley, Nevada. <clears throat> we kept the ranch, but we all moved to Virginia. He worked for Ezra Taft Benson, who was the Secretary of Agriculture 
in the Eisenhower administration. And your dad did? Yes. Awesome. And so we left Tom Montgomery in charge of the ranch. But then I think we moved there in a, on February or March. Uh, I was in the fourth grade. And by the time spring came, my father went to the principal of the school that DeMar and I went to and said he wanted to take us out of school and send us to Nevada to the ranch to uh, do the spring cowboying branding and everything. And DeMar is like a year and a half older than me. And so the the principal of that school said, well, we certainly do not want school to get in the way of these boys' education. So (laughs) take them. (laughs) And so they put us on a bus with our saddles and little suitcases, and we went to do the cowboying. It was a grazing association. And the other cowboys that were there, I think there were about seven different ownerships of cattle, some may have had 20 or 50 cows and uh, some had 500 cows but uh, it was quite a representation of different kind of cowboys and it was a great experience and they ran a, a buckaroo wagon that was an old dodge pickup uh, they still make those they use that name power wagon and this was a power wagon like left over from the second world war but we would camp in about three different places in the spring and then kind of the same thing in the fall and uh, live in our bedrolls and we put up a cook tent and uh, move the wagon as we were moving the cattle and handling the cattle. So that's kind of how I got started being a cowboy. I've enjoyed that over all the years and have learned more and more and and have realized that... Uh, there's sure a lot of cowboys that are better than I am, especially at some of the uh, uh, more skilled aspects of it. Um, I've rode wild horses uh, quite a bit. One winter I spent mostly roping wild horses uh, to put groceries on the table because all these little hungry mammals would come for dinner every night. And uh, we needed to feed them. <laughs> I foot trapped wild horses and uh, and also roped them and tied them down and hauled them to town. How would you foot trap them? Can you explain that to me a little bit? Well, you, uh, you get on a trail where they come into water. There was one water this this one winter where I did this. Um, something like 300 horses that would come to that water. It was a long creek, very small, uh, coming off of a desert mountain. Um, But it it would run for a mile or a mile and a half where they'd come in to get a drink. And you pick out a really noticeable trail. And you make a little box that is, um, I think I made those 14 inches by 14 inches and they had no top and they had no bottom just the frame they dig, dig a hole that they fit snugly into 
you, you have a top that will slide down through the frame and you put um, a couple of pieces of like bailing wire across the, almost to the top so that little platform is resting on the wires and you have the wires hooked to a pin uh, through a, a clamp so that if you pull the pin if you push down on the lid it pulls the pins so like the clamps are about a, like a couple of uh, fence staples and so the the pin is holding you take a big inner tube and cut it into donuts like the like the team ropers do for their saddle horn and you lace those together so that you make a chain of inner tube that is maybe six or eight feet long you okay. tie it really firm to a sagebrush and then you put, take the other end over and put it on a um on a small rope that you put in where the pin is released and you lay <laughs> a, a, I used soft uh, braided nylon rope that would be five sixteenths maybe um, but not not quite half inch and lay it in a little circle on the platform of this box and just outside of the hondu, you tie a piece of string that goes to the inner tube. And the inner tube is, is like a spring. It's all stretched out. And so the idea is the horse steps on that platform. That releases the, the spring of the inner tube, which jerks the foot rope tight. And it goes right around the below the fetlock almost every time. And then that rope is, oh, I, I would cut a pinion log, um, maybe as big as a railroad tie, maybe six or seven feet long and uh, maybe eight inch diameter, 10 inch diameter, and then tie that rope to the center of that log. And so the horse would have the rope around his foot, the poor thing, I felt so sorry for him. And then we <laughs> have to go to the center of this uh, this log. And so when I'd come by to take him out of the trap, they're standing there with that rope around their foot, and they're staring at that log. And then they, because they've drug it as far as they can, and they've tired out, which yeah. isn't really far, depending on the brush. Anyway, that's kind of the. There are different methods of foot trapping them that, you know, it's kind of a lost art now. Nobody does it anymore. Yeah. It's against the law or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of cool, though. There was an old ranch up uh, kind of in the mountain and a, a corral that I fixed up to hold wild horses. So I'd accumulate them in the corral and I'd get five or six of them and haul them to town and send them to Disneyland. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't making very much money, but it was it was fun and putting groceries on the table. I'd set several traps, like I might set three, maybe sometimes four traps, 
and then go over the other side of the water over a long ways away so I wouldn't disturb the horses that come into water. And then I'd rope uh, some and take them to the corral. And mm. so I'd, I'd get enough to f- fill the little trailer that I had and take them to market. Nice. It was a lot of fun. But what I realize is there are some cowboys that can rope wild horses and tie them down and go get another one, just like uh, so much better than me. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed it, and I had a really good horse, and sometimes I'd rope one time down, and then uh, if, the, if I ha- had them, the herd, a little tired, I could go catch another one. So catch yeah. two in one run. That's cool. It was a long time ago. That's, yeah. Which is relative to now we're, we're in 2022. Yeah. The Wild Horse and Burrow Act of 1971 is what Wild Horse Annie got created that made it against the law to harass wild horses and burrows. Is that an issue that you have on your place right now? Do you have a lot of problems with the wild horses? Um, Jeanette and I have a ranch leased down south of Goldfield, Nevada. And it's been several years since we've had our own cattle there. We finally sold our cows. We took in the neighbor's cows. So the neighbors run their cattle on our leased ranch. And they take care of them, so they do all the work. So that's working out really well. Fortunately, this is a great big BLM allotment. And we've got maybe 30 wild horses there, and they're they're cute, uh, pretty, small horses. Uh, we're not supposed to have any burrows. The allotment is mostly fenced, either a genuine fence or rough geography. Uh, There's some burrows that came in. They got across the cattle guard that filled up. And then we got them out of there. And now the other day I saw that some of them are back. So we don't have a wild horse problem there personally. But, you know, you don't have to look very far in Nevada to see terrible wild horse problems. Was it nerve-wracking for you as a boy in the fourth grade to just get on a train and leave your family and go with your brother back to Nevada? Or was it something you were comfortable doing? No, it was just something that they said we'd do, and it was actually a bus. And and then Tom, the guy that's running the ranch, picked us up in Wells, Nevada, which is close to Star Valley and close to the ranch, and took us straight to cow camp. He had got together some uh, tarps and bedding and made up a bedroll for each of us and uh, just go, went, dropped us off at cow camp. He had taken our horses, about three horses apiece, uh, a few days before that. And so he he'd got the horses all shot and ready to go. So we just kind of came from school to cow camp. Uh, interesting enough, because of the Elko County weather and seasons my birthday is on the 9th of june and i turned 10 years old we, we got to that cow camp oh, probably the first the, around the first of june and on the morning of my birthday we woke up with about six inches of real wet 
uh, heavy snow on our bed. Oh, wow. Which is not unusual for us. <laughs> yeah, it's more unusual now. The weather seems to have been, you know, it's a climate change or something. So was that kind of the first place that you went and were by yourself and worked as a cowboy? Yes. And uh, there were some guys there that really took care of us. Wayne Bake was the cow boss. They'd have a, they'd change cow bosses every once in a while. And it would just be one of the ranches that ran cattle in that grazing association. Um, Ped Hill, who lived, who had a ranch at the headquarters in Star Valley, close to us. Uh, some of them were uh, Charlie Parks that would come over and rep for the Wine Cup Ranch, which was adjacent to where this grazing association ran cattle. And there were some of those guys who were uh, left over from the California Baccaro traditions, uh, spade bits and single cinch saddles. And uh, I was first exposed to that with them, and it didn't really take hold with me. I enjoyed it a little bit and appreciated it a little bit. But as years went by, I thought how fortunate I was to be exposed to that. And I kind of got back to it. And I watched a lot of other people who were really good at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really a great way to go horseback. For those people listening who might not be familiar with the vaquero style, can you just explain that really quick? Yeah, the the horses are started in a hackamore, and there, there there was kind of a new version of this when they developed a bunch of those horse trainers, commercial trainers got together and created the snaffle bit futurity, and their method was start the horse a young horse in a snaffle bit, then go to a hackamore and then go to a bridle. But the real old tradition uh, did did not use snaffle bits. Snaffle bits were an English thing. And they just used the wakima, which is the, the hackamore, and uh, a, a braided bozal with a rawhide most, most of the time, and a hair rope, uh, uh, McCarty. And... Uh, they would get the horse broke in the hackamore. And then they would use a smaller bozal and put the bridle on the horse and let him carry it for a long time until he got used to it. And they wouldn't pick up the reins until the horse, they'd pick up the reins slowly and gently as the, as they did their work. And eventually they were using the bridle reins and the horse was, working completely off the bridle reins. But the thing about working off the bridle reins, and so many people don't know or appreciate this, a lot of them do, but the body, the the rider's body, legs, seat, spurs, have so much to do with the rein. So you don't use the rein as much as you use the body for the most part. And uh, those horses, um, of course, there's good horses, there's bad horses, there's all kinds of mediocre horses. 
and the, the the really good ones that turned out really good or do turn out really good now are the exceptional ones anyway. But uh, like a spade bit is is a signal. There's there's not pressure. There's not a, a pull and a jerk or a double. Or it, it's it's just the the real fine um, signal that goes through the reins and down through the chains into the bit. Anyway, that's a quick version of the California and vaquero with a V. But the way the, a lot of the Mexicans, they say they're V like a B, like vaca, mm. or cow. And so I that I call them vaqueros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for going okay. over that. Uh, I got around, day working around Nevada uh, a lot with uh, some of the old-time cattle. There, there's a, the Sea Punch Ranch in Pershing County outside of Lovelock is a good example. They used to have red cows with high horns, and they were uh, red-necked, red ring around their eyes, and wild, and in some cases spoiled. Well, if you didn't ever spill them, if you just always held them together, they were great to handle. They, they could be as broke as any cattle. They traveled good. They always keep their calf with them. They don't go off to water alone and leave a babysitter with a b- b- bunch of calves. Uh, c- completely different than the black cows that we know these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if the red cows, those old high-horned cows, if they got spoiled, they could be really tough. And it was a lot of fun roping them and then roping the calf and marking the calf and letting them go and, and trying to let them go so that they weren't more wild. <laughs> you try to let them go easy so that next time <laughs> you see them, they might stop for you. Which, <laughs> Okay, so the next thing I did horseback for a few years, I showed jumping horses and I really enjoyed it. And How did you get into that? Well, I, I've i always liked thoroughbred horses, and I ended up, I was trading a lot of horses. Um, I'll insert this part right now. Uh, a few years ago, Corky Linfoot was a lifetime polo player, and he polo played all around the world, and he's a, a good friend and analytical, and and it, it really interesting to talk to about horses. And he said to me a couple of years ago, how many horses have you owned in your life? And I still don't really have an idea. I know it's more than a hundred. I don't know if it's more or less than a thousand, but at any rate, I was, (laughs) I ended up with some tall athletic thoroughbreds that were made for jumping. And so I started showing them as jumpers at just little shows around Reno and selling them locally to the horse show people there. Uh, I still have not ever got enough of jumping horses. It's a great event. And, and the horses, the good, well, like the good horses are just so enjoyable. So I fit that part into my life for a while. And then I saw, um, 
Johnny Loftus came out of Shandon, California, uh, bought a ranch in Nevada, ended up as a cow buyer mostly. Interesting guy that had been around a lot. I met him on the road here kind of by Fallon, and we were talking through the pickup windows, and I said, I got a bunch of little thoroughbred horses that are not big enough for jumpers, and I don't have, I don't know what to do with them. The just don't seem to want them. And he said, don't you know, they're polo ponies. And I said, no, Johnny, they're not playing polo anymore. And he said, oh, yeah, they are. You can hear the main brother-in-law, Billy Linfoot, and do you take your little thoroughbred horses down there and he'll buy them for, from you. And I did, and he did. And so <laughs> I got into polo, and Billy Linfoot taught me what a polo pony is supposed to be. And then I spent years shopping for them. Jeanette and I would go to the racetrack and shop for the horses. I would go through the shed rows and asking if any horses are for sale. Jeanette would go over at the saddling paddock at one o'clock when the races started and she'd have the program and she'd make notes watching the horses, especially mares, uh, three-year-old mares, um, two is better, but they don't race. So, uh, she would watch them while they're being saddled, what their disposition's like, uh, what their confirmation is like, and if they might have a chance of being a polo pony. And then she, she would watch the race, and if they won the race, she'd forget about them because they're not going to be for sale. But if they ran fifth in the field of four, they, then they might be for sale. <laughs> so then then they might be for sale. <laughs> yeah. This was before cell phones, which would have really helped. But then we'd get together and uh, compare what I'd found over in the barns and what she'd found watching the races and the saddling and so on. And we'd shop for polo prospects. And it was great fun. We had a lot of fun doing it. And then we'd take them to the polo field and play them as green, um, green polo ponies. And there's a lot of green horse polo in different places. And then... Uh, Had you the, ever played polo before this point in your life, or did you kind of learn that as you went? Uh, I, I, I started to learn it... Um, oh, I'm trying to think. About the time that I quit rodeoing, I rodeoed at the what, what they called then the amateur circuit because I could beat most of the bull riders and... Uh, it, it didn't cost a lot of money to get in, but I could make some money. And then I kind of outgrew that. So plus someplace in my early thirties is when I got exposed to the polo pony thing from Johnny Loftus and Billy Linfoot. And, uh, there was, uh, John, Jack Conant at Turlock, California, had a little polo club there. He helped me a great deal. He was just so kind to me and so patient with me. And uh, there were a lot of people along the way who just helped me because they knew I wanted to learn how to play polo. And if you ever become a really good polo player, you start when you're eight years old, just like if you become a good roper or a, a saddle bronc rider when you start riding calves at 
eight years old. Mm-hmm. So I was too old to, and I couldn't afford. See, we'd have a bunch of, uh, we'd have t- ten usually uh, green polo ponies that were playing pony polo on, and uh, uh, the good ones would sell. People would just come and see them and shopping for them and they would offer us enough that we'd have to sell them and what we wanted to do was get some made horses where we could play real full and get on some teams which we were able to do a few times but uh that's for, cool for the most part it was just doing the ponies yeah huh L- lately I've got old and slow, and <laughs> so I, I've never been interested in going and watching the horse shows, and finally, I kind of started. In fact, I've, the only reason I'd watch polo, which is great fun to watch polo, is that I might become a better player. Uh, I've never been inclined to show horses, but I've developed an appreciation for the guys that do, and... Uh, watching the little things that they do with their horses or the little things that they miss with their horses when they turn the cow on the fence I said, and the horse's head comes up and the mouth comes open and I say, whoo, should have used more leg. Should have <laughs> used less rain. Uh, those kind of things. My brother keeps some cattle over winter and gets gets me to come over and bring a horse and we work our horses on his cattle for fun. And then he says, why don't you get that horse ready and we'll go to some of these little shows around here. And I say, Demar, if I'm going to go to a horse show, it's going to be a jumping horse. It's not going to be a cowboy horse. <laughs> the cowboy horses, and especially the rainers, they're trick horses. They slide and they go round and round and round and uh, change their lead. Nice. But they're trick horses. But then most all of them are trick horses. The jumping horses are trick horses in their way. The polo horses are trick horses in their way. Artie Steinbeck always used to say, and he really appreciated a thoroughbred horse. And he said, there's different versions of this. So uh, any, anything a horse can do, a thoroughbred can do better. <laughs> and, and so it says, you get a good thoroughbred horse, and he comes off the track. That's where most of my horses came from for years. And all you got to do is change his event. You take him from the racetrack, to the ranch, and you've got to, you come out with a super cow horse that will be like a cutting horse when you do that part with him. He'll rope cattle outside and hold them while you get off and tie them down, and uh, or he'll go play polo for you if that's what yeah. you decide to send him to do. And there are, there are a few good horses. There are not very many. <laughs> Is there a particular, like, line of thoroughbred that you like or do you just go and you're okay with anything as long as you see that their disposition is good 
Confirmation is pretty important, but it's not the most important. Uh, disposition, just like you said, attitude and willingness. Uh, there's this old guy, Arnold Rojas, that wrote books about the old vaqueros in California. And one of the things that he said that really stuck in my mind is that the good horse has a tendency to adapt himself. I'm not, there's an important word in there that, that it's not coming to me, but the good horse adapts himself, a different word, uh, to the rider. And he senses what the rider wants. And whether it's, uh, You'll see it in the really good horses in their first ride. Or, see, I I quit breaking horses the old-fashioned way where you forefoot them and go through all of that, tie up a back leg and get a saddle on them. And uh, because I just didn't have access to those kind of horses, but I did to the track horses. And if they raced, if they're a three-year-old filly that raced, they've been through the sweats, they've worked hard, they know what it's like to be a horse that has to go to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you have one of those that is sensitive and adapts to the rider, then uh, they're rare, but you've got a really good thing going. And here's the way I look at it. I grew up being a cowboy, and I was a cowboy for a long time, and I went and did polo for a long time. I come back and did some more cowboy, and I don't quite fit in either world. Uh, I'm just kind of uh, mediocre in either world, maybe. <laughs> and I really appreciate the guys that are good at and have spent their life making good polo horses or making good cowboy horses. And nowadays, the spade bit is not very much in fashion. The training bit of so many different versions is in fashion, and the weighed tree with a front cinch and a back cinch, and so you can rope a cow and manhandle her. Uh, the old center fires, lightweight, high horn, high cannel California saddles that created the California style of cowboying. You don't hardly see them anymore. But they were an art. You can't jerk a cow around with those. They're just not made for it. And I I appreciate the guys that have changed their equipment and tack and how they use it for that purpose. I don't like it for myself. I like the old style better where it's more of an art and you've got to handle the cow. You, you you can't manhandle her. It's more like you handle a great big fish on the end of a line or something. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's definitely an art form to be able to handle the cows smooth. Yeah, there really is. One time, Jeanette and I went over to a ranch here for three years, uh, just east of where we live now. A family bought that ranch, and uh, a big family, a lot of uh, grown-up children involved in it. And Jeanette and I went there to help them get their feet on the ground because it was kind of a new thing to them to have a cattle on a desert ranch. Um, At one point someplace there, 
I roped a cow. Uh, she was having trouble calving. So the calf was starting to come out, but wouldn't, wouldn't get out. So I roped her and rode around in a circle like the way you do and get a trip on her and get her down and then uh, pull the calf. Sometimes they won't bother to get up, but if they do, maybe you got to lay them down again and, and tie them. But a lot of times they'll just lay down and let you pull the calf. So one of those kids, I don't know if he's a 10 or 12-year-old kid, was telling some of the family, Joe does magic with those cows. He ropes them, rides a circle around them, they lay down, and then <laughs> he pulls the calf out. <laughs> That's part of the art that you're talking about. Yeah. Just he does that. magic. That's cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. When you look back on your life, do any memories in particular stand out to you? Oh, boy, I'm blessed with so many memories, <laughs> and they're really good ones, and they're uh, they're fun to tell, and uh, let me see if there's any, I don't know, there's there's so many, it's, it's, I, I've cowboyed quite a bit in the coast hills, uh, down around Paso Robles, and that part of California, uh, on those ranches, being a genuine cowboy, and handling cattle steers on on uh, grass. At one point, we had 10,000 steers with seven different brands on them on one great big ranch. Wow. And, uh, and they're all running together. So when we ship, we put them in the shipping uh, sorting pens and, and uh, sort seven ways as they had to go on the truck. And... Wow. and so there's just uh, a lot of memories in a lot of ways and places. And uh, <laughs> if if we if we sat around and talked for the rest of the afternoon, like we can <laughs> just keep going through them. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. And I yeah. think I told you this on the phone the other day when we talked about what we're going to do. See, there was there's this thing about this guy. He was a motorcycle rider, riding a Harley Davidson, and I suppose he had a gray beard and a pot belly, and and like like those guys do. But what he said <laughs> was that he'd been able to ride a Harley Davidson for most of his life, and and I guess the rest of it. And he says, and I guess the rest of my life, I just wasted away. So the Harley was the main thing. In his whole life, and I think when I told you that the other day about I was able to be a buckaroo in the Great Basin and the Coast Hills, and I was able to do uh, train and play polo ponies, and I don't know how life and, and I did a little bit of jumping, and I don't know how life could be any better. And, and then I raised a great family, and then <laughs> see other than that, I just wasted my life. <laughs> I don't know. From the sounds of it, I don't think you've wasted your life. <laughs> oh, it's all been great, and it still is. <laughs> still enjoying it. Yeah. It sounds like you've been a lot of different places horseback. Is there one place in particular that, when you think of the coolest place you've ever been on a horse, this place stands out to you? Oh, man, I don't know. 
there have been so many. Uh, and this is not cowboying. This is just sightseeing in the Ruby Mountains behind between Star Valley and Clover Valley. It, it's, it's a great big rocky ridge of the Ruby Mountains, and there's a, a hole in the mountain. And it's, uh, I, I don't know, it's 10 or 12 feet high and maybe that much across. And you can see it from either valley. And you see right through that high ridge of rock. And uh, I've been up there several times, but just to ride up there and then tie horses to a rock and then walk over to the hole in the mountain. And uh, it's not really got anything to do with being a cowboy. But there's, uh, you know, I, I like the coast hills, except where the brush is thick. <laughs> I like it. And, and, and there's, there's been a lot of fun. Uh, we'd be gathering those steers that are weighing eight, nine hundred pounds. And in the, in the, we'd lose some of them. We wouldn't get them in. So, this, you know, if you spill them once, then they're spoiled. And, and then you got to just go beat the brush for them and take the dogs and hope for a clearing where you can get a loop through. And then in the Great Basin, there's all those big open valleys with the, the mountain ranges in between. And at, at one time, I might have been in my 20s. Uh, we we're Wherever we're going, we're going to gather cattle out of the mountain. And it occurred to me, I don't like the mountain. <laughs> it's rough. It's hard work. I'd much rather go to the flat. Maybe we can go to the flat tomorrow. We kick these cattle down out of the, <laughs> of the hills. And uh, I, I, I used to hunt a long time ago, but I don't hunt anymore because I don't like to kill things. <laughs> but uh, uh, if you're hunting in the mountains and you see a deer way over there and you assess uh, in order for me to get, if I shoot him now, I've got to go way down and way back or go way up around to get back over where he is. And so you think about it and you say, I'm not going to do that. So you pass him <laughs> up and you go on. But if a cow is over there, you've got to go get her. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I like that. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say the best part about living the kind of lifestyle that you lived has been? Not being in town. I've I've driven all over California, hauling horses, selling and buying, and and there's just pavement and vehicles and towns and cities and go through Los Angeles basin at two o'clock in the morning and the freeways are almost empty. But if you go through Los Angeles basin with five horses in the trailer at five o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> you want to sleep in the <laughs> and so the lifestyle is open country. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. What would your advice be to the next generation who wants to come up in this kind of lifestyle? Pay attention to anybody that you might think could help you learn 
more about horses. I, I, I was pretty much grown up before I started taking an interest in uh, the finesse of horses, what, uh, how to get them to do what I wanted them to do. In my old age, I realized that there are methods and names for methods. Um, the, the dressage people, I, I got interested in dressage when I was showing jumping horses. And, and I thought to myself several times, why don't the cowboys, the show horse guys, use these dressage methods, use leg and seat? And then I realized some of them do, some of them. And I think it was becoming more fashionable then. And, uh. Do you think they, that part of it could be a little bit of pride, like on the, for some <laughs> of the people on the cowboy side? versus the polo side absolutely (laughs) and what what i'm really enjoying more is seeing all these clinicians all of these smart guys that know all the answers and know how to make a good horse and they they get people together and give them a clinic and tell them how smart they are and people come and listen to them and i think it's the best thing in the world for horses and for people, and especially for horses. Because if a guy goes to a clinic, he learns to not abuse a horse. For the most, no matter whose clinic it is, and no matter how sorry of a clinician he is, <laughs> usually the students come out of there with less of an inclination to jerk a horse's mouth or to stick a spur in him when you don't need to. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's so much better for for the horses. I'm really glad to see that part. And for the young guys, when you ask um, how I would advise them, listen to everybody and use those parts that you can make work for you and you can make work for your horse or some things work for one horse and they don't work at all for the other horse and, and, and vice versa. But learn all that you can, learn all you can about the bits uh, how the bit works in the horse's mouth and how the the horse's mouth uh, can can handle some bits. And the, the conformation of the mouth is important. Uh, some bits work well in the, some kind of mouths and some mouths don't handle. Some horses can't handle a spade bit just because of the construction in their mouth. But pay attention, listen to everybody, so much of it you just want to throw away because it's going to be useless. But try all of it. Try everything. See if it's going to work for you. What is the funnest thing you've ever roped? <laughs> I saw that in your list. And I haven't roped much uh, that's exotic. Um, and I can't think of... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, when when you're on a, I would work the same horses. I'd take a green polo horse to a ranch for a few days or a couple of horses and, and do ranch work on them and then go back to the polo field with them. And you take one of those thousand pound three-year-old thoroughbred fillies and you, you come on this 1800 pound bull with a lump jaw 
And what are you going to do? Within luck at all, there's two of you at least so that you can head and heal them. And uh, the guy who ropes the head on a 1,000-pound horse has got to have <laughs> some of that <laughs> that we mentioned. And, uh, oh, yeah, the exotic things that we've roped. I know a guy here, Mike Stremler, who's roped about every kind of wild animal there is, except I don't think he roped an antelope. He, he was telling us that the other day about, about the branding. Um, coyotes and this Arnold Rojas, uh, I was just reading one of his books with a lot of little short stories in it. It talked about roping coyotes and how difficult it is. And I've roped dogs. And I've roped coyotes a little bit. And if you throw your loop to go over their head, you're going to miss them. Because they'll see it coming. They'll hesitate just enough that it goes beyond them. And I've seen and made this work. If you throw your loop so that it would uh, collapse over the neck, so the, the tip of your loop would hit them in the neck, the top of the neck behind the ears, and the rest of the loop would collapse over that. It's almost a sure shot. They'll duck right into your loop. Nice. <laughs> it works most of the time. But Ro- Rojas had never figured that out when I read his stories about roping <laughs> Just one last question. I always like to ask people, in their opinion, to define the word cowboy. Like, in your mind, how would you define the word cowboy? <laughs> and you can oh, differentiate if you want. If you want to go into the whole buckaroo cowboy thing, you could do that too if you want. But I'm always curious what that definition is to different people. Okay, I, t- I told you I was just reading and I've, uh, I've read off and on over the years. There's Arnold Rojas's, and he talked about the uh, California. Vaqueros. Now, the Texans were cowboys in that era of uh, the 1800s. And he tells us that the uh, Spanish came to Mexico. Some of them became Mexican. They were, some went to Texas, some went to California. And he says the Californios were Vaqueros. And the the gringos, the white men that were in California at that time, uh, had an influence in the vaquero community and learned to be a vaquero with them. But they changed some of the wording, like uh, makate, which is the hair rope for the hackamore, uh, the hackamore itself, the wakima. The, the gringos changed it to hackamore and makate to McCarty, which we call mm-hmm. our hope these days in the Great Basin anyway. And they uh, they changed the name of Vaquero for themselves to Buckaroo, uh, is what Rojas says and was pretty well accepted by everybody. That's where the word Buckaroo came from. Huh. And... Uh, they they made a big sweep through the West. The Charlie Russell's paintings in Montana 
if you look at them, they're single fire, center fire, single cinch saddles with that little pistol grip horn. They're spade bits, and my horses has got their mouth wide open, gapping open with it in the, in the spade bit because not enough leg, too much rain. <laughs> and so the cowboy, uh, Rojas, said that the vaqueros or the buckaroos would never call themselves a cowboy. <laughs> and the cowboys, I, I, if, if I've got it right, and I'm not sure I do, but it started around the Civil Civil War period in the eastern states when they were stealing cattle, when one army was stealing cattle from the other army is where that cowboy term uh, really t- took hold. And then it started moving west from there. And and then we know that uh, all through the Great Plains and the cattle shipments out of Texas, they, were, they became cowboys. And so when I, I, I've written some of my stories and uh, like I've written about equipment, um, a double bridle. I, I had a mare, a spoiled mare, spoiled in polo. And then I ended up with her and the guy that sent her to me said, don't ever expect to play polo on her. She's done with polo. Well, she's a real sensitive mare that had a really soft mouth. And I finally figured out the best way that I could get along with her. It was a double bridle with draw reins. And the cowboys don't know what a double bridle is for the most part. And they hate draw reins if they're any kind of cowboy at all. And I was riding along with Larry Shooty one day on this mare with the double and the draw reins. And he said... (laughs) I wish that were a gelding. I'd trade you out of him and put him in a proper bridle the way he should be. Because the mayor worked really good on what I had in. In my stories, I say, I use this and this. The cowboys don't appreciate it, but that's what I do. So in so many ways, I don't consider myself a cowboy, but I have an appreciation for what they are. And I realized that some of the things that I do, the leftover from the jumping horses, the dressage, and the polo ponies, is uh, if it's not offensive, at least it's weird or unacceptable to <laughs> the cowboy. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like as a horse person, as a horseman, you would want to be open to whatever is going to make your horse work the best and be the softest and. So it's kind of interesting to me to see the, well, I don't use that because I'm a polo player. I don't use that because I'm a, you know, like right. that's always interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think I have asked all the questions that I've been wanting to. It's been really nice visiting with you. Um, but if you have anything else that you feel like you want to share that you haven't, feel free. We've had a, uh, we've had a good visit and I've enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, well, good. I have to. That concludes my interview with Joe Dahl. Just like always, to put a face behind the name, you can go to our Instagram. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And if you know somebody who would be a good fit for the show, feel free to send me an email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 